Well, good morning, Redeemer family. Today, we are going to do something a little bit different in our study. We're going back to the book of James. We're going to do a little bit something different than what we've done in the past. Whereas we've been looking at larger sections of James and chunks of verses, today, we're just going to be highlighting one verse of Scripture. Now, there, there are many reasons why, but, but I want to give three quick ones. One, it's, it's important sometimes when we read our Bibles to read quickly, and sometimes we need to go slowly. And so sometimes we need chapters just to get an understanding of what God's Word says to us. Other times we need to just meditate on one verse, like we're going to do today. Uh, second quick reason, there, there are verses in Scripture that appear to have contradictions with other verses in Scripture. And we need to have a little bit more time to tackle sort of these apparent contradictions because if we don't, we can walk away with a misunderstanding of the application of the text that we don't want to face. And number three, there are verses in Scripture that tell us to stop and pause and consider the glory of God in new and refreshing ways. And James is doing so emphatically in this one verse. So... If you have your Bibles, let's all turn, tap, swipe them to James chapter 5, verse 12. And uh, let's all stand together as we read this one verse. If you have it in your pew Bible, in your pew Bible this is on page uh, 1013. James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray together. Father, be with the preaching of your word today. Help us to have ears to hear, hearts that are softened, minds that are engaged, and souls that are yearning to find our rest in you and your promises, what you have sworn to us. May your spirit be now with your preached word, and may it help us to love Jesus more and more. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. So uh, if you've grown up in the church, uh, you'll know that there are certain words that are in Scripture that, that will make you stop and wonder. And, and pastors love teaching these words over and over because the drama that is Scripture is about to change. For example, you know that when you see the phrase, therefore, in a text, you have to ask yourself what the therefore is therefore. See? You know it, right? Uh, what that therefore is therefore. Or when you see a writer in Scripture beginning a phrase with, my brothers, or brothers, you'll know that the writer is honing his, on his affection for the church and the people that he's writing to. So when you see the word, like, my brothers in Scripture, it's more than just informational, it's affection. Or in the case of Paul in Romans chapter 12, you can combine both of those, where he says, therefore, my brothers, to really hammer his point home about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's, it's sort of these essential turns of phrases in Scripture that make us pause and wonder. So today's text has one of these phrases, and that phrase is not just my brothers, but above all. That should be like a brick wall that slams you in your tracks when you're reading Scripture. This is the record scratch that like shuts down the dance floor, right? James here is starting verse 12 by highlighting the meta theme of his letter at the end of the chapter. Some scholars argue that this is the key to even understanding why the book of James was written. 
And so what was written so far? Let's, let's recap our time in James. This, this is a book of the Bible of the discussion of Christian wisdom and Christian character for the church. It's the New Testament's version of the book of Proverbs. And as we've covered before, although James is often read as a book that, that speaks on individual wisdom, if we really wanted to be faithful to the text, all of the yous in James are actually second-person plurals, which means this is really written for the church as a body to practice wisdom that is scattered all across the nations. This is the context of the book of James. You see, James is concerned about Christian witness. He's concerned about them enduring and running the race well. He's, he's speaking to them scattered across the diaspora and many of these areas where Christians are migrating. For the very first time, people are experiencing Christians and Christianity. So, so James wants Christians to represent Christ well. And he applies this wisdom throughout the book of James in all sorts of categories as we've been talking about, you know, through suffering, through trials, speaking in love, living out their, their faith and works in a way that does not compromise the gospel, but rather demonstrates a living hope, you know, warnings against loving the world and learning how to resolve disputes with one another. So, so now we come to James 5.12 to this above all statement. And here we see the pinnacle of understanding of all of his exhortations. This is the height of everything. And James wants to discuss swearing? Swearing? I mean, this is the most important thing that, that he wants the church to understand. This is the backbone of all of his exhortations? Why would a prohibition on oaths and vows be the above all thing that James would want the church to uphold? And this is often debated amongst those who study Scripture as to what this is talking about. Is, is this above all talking about the context of the paragraph in Scripture that we just read the last time we were there? Or is it going all the way back to his chapter on tongues? Or is this the overarching point of the book as a whole? And while nothing is perfectly conclusive on, on those matters, it is clear, though, that James views this exhortation of above all as something so important that he, this is the only time in the book of James that he uses that above all statement. This is important, and we need to examine it. So let's examine the text on three very important things, three important points. One, when is swearing good? Two, when is swearing bad? And three, what God swears to us. So one, when is swearing good? Two, when is swearing bad? And three, what God swears to us. If, if you have a friend, a non-Christian, who asks you what you learned in church today, you can just tell them you learned about swearing in church. So, number one, when is swearing good? James 5 talks about swearing. He's not talking about what we normally think about when he think about swearing. He's not talking about curse words or forbidden phrases. He already addressed that in chapter 3. The word swearing here is translated as either taking a vow or taking an oath. And while both of these words might sound similar, they are, in fact, acceptable forms of swearing in the Bible. Scripture makes clear distinctions between what a vow is and what an oath is all throughout the Old and New Testament. So, so we need to define these two swear words, oath and vow. First, a vow is a promise made between an individual and God. A vow is a promise made between an individual and God. Think Numbers chapter 6. 
the Nazareth vows in the Old Testament that were made to consecrate a person to the Lord. They, they had all these rules, right? No wine, no vinegar, no haircuts, no dead people. And at the end of it, the person would end their vow to the Lord by the giving of sacrifices to show that the person is consecrated before God. So, so swearing be, between an individual and God, we see this in Scripture, examples of this in Scripture, is a vow. An oath, however, was, was made to, between individuals and other individuals with God as a witness. So an example of this would be Genesis 24, perhaps the funniest example of an oath. Abraham is, is making his servant oath to him to find a wife for Isaac. And wisely, the servant says, what if I can't find a wife for Isaac? I mean, you're asking me to ask a woman to move sight unseen to Canaan to marry someone that they haven't seen. And Abraham says, all right, fair point. If you can't find anyone, then you're released from your oath. And the servant says, good, right? I'll make that oath because that gives me an exit clause. Otherwise, God is going to judge me as a witness if I can't keep that oath. So, so an oath is swearing between an individual and another individual with God as a witness, all right? So a vow and an oath are defined scripturally in these two ways. These are, these are good vows. These are good oaths that we can make. Now, this, by the way, might be a little unsettling for many of you that are married here today, because at your weddings, you may have taken what you called marriage vows with one another, and that's actually imprecise when you think about it biblically. You actually took marriage oaths, you know, where the husband oaths to the wife, like, I promise I will love you forever. I will always vacuum the house and never, you know, whatever, you know, whatever that, right? They're making commitments of oaths to one another. They're not actually in the strictest definition of scripture, a vow. Now, I, I scare, I say that not to scare anyone here about this minor point, and we're not going to change the branding of weddings here today, but, but what I'm doing is to hammer this point home. When we think biblically about the good kind of swearing, we're thinking about oaths and vows. Now, what is actually good about this? Why is this kind of swearing allowed in scripture? You see, these are lawful oaths and lawful vows made uh, in order to that we can be in line with God's will for his people and God's commands. When we take lawful oaths and lawful vows, we are in line with God's will for his people and God's commands. This is the reason why uh, we, we do these, because they are oaths and vows that echo the faithful character of God himself. In other words, when promises were made, the person making them wouldn't say, as we often do in our culture today, my word is bond on this, but rather we say, you should consider this a done deal because God himself is tied to the swearing. The character of God's faithfulness is brought out in these sworn vows and oaths, and to break them was to invoke the very punishment of God's wrath on those that did not achieve them. So this is the backdrop of James chapter 5, verse 12. And if, you, if you're with me this far, you may be asking yourself an obvious question here. Uh, hang on. If, if we have two clear examples in Scripture of oaths and vows, and there's plenty more that we can get into, and we also have a clear contemporary version today of marriage vows or oaths as, that we do say is biblical and that we should do, then why in this verse is it saying that swearing is bad? What's James' issue here? And perhaps a better question to ask as we examine this text is, what kind of swearing is James talking about? What kind of swearing is bad? If you continue reading in verse 12, 
you will notice that the swearing he's referring to is the oaths that are made by any other oath than an oath with God. When James writes either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, he's talking about placing an oath on anything other than the foundation of God as witness and testifier to the oath you have made. In other words, if you're believing that anyone else than other than God is the foundation of your promises, even heaven and earth itself, you are fooling yourself. So, let's think of modern examples, right? If you're swearing an oath on your mother's grave, or your grandmother's grave, or your father's honor, or scout's honor, or swearing on your life, you know, all these things sound like honorable and cherished things to swear on, but what have you actually done in that moment? What you have done is essentially placed your word on something that could fail or has failed. And James here is saying, why would you even think about doing that? Why would you even let the possibility of that occur? It's, it's foolishness. We are betraying our witness as a people who believe in the power and promises of God instead of trading in for something that, a false idol that we value or cherish and hope on more than God's promises, more than God's word himself. So it stands to reason that James is trying to tell us, look at all of what these rash oaths and rash vows are saying about you and saying about our witness as the church. You think you're being some kind of a prophet, you know, swearing your life on deadlines, work projects, chores that you'll get done around the house, reaching out to that friend or family member. Or, or maybe you've made a rash oath or vow on something that's holy. You know, you have that sort of mountaintop retreat moment and you come back and you swear, I swear on my integrity and honor that I'm going to read my Bible every day and pray every moment, right? And all these rash oaths and vows fail and they fade away. And what they do is actually reveal the truth of who we are apart from God. We are a people of rash, wholehearted promises, but half-baked delivery. Apart from God, we can never, ever promise what we try to deliver on, no matter how much we swear on it. And we as a people now make our testimony and our witness uncredible. This is just as an aside, by the way, we're skeptical of promises in today's world, right? Like, this is precisely why if somebody you don't know is trying to win your trust and they start off, their leadoff pitch is, I swear on my life this is a winner, are you more convinced or less convinced that it's true, right? You're less convinced, right? Why? Because swearing today in the public sphere doesn't hold much weight anymore. So when Christians swear on anything other than what God has willed, we lose our chance, our witness to speak on anything else in the world in need of truth. James's concern for the Christians across the diaspora is the same for the church today. Is the church credible? Do we mean what we say? Are we saying things that are objectively true? Are we saying things that carry the force with it of speaking God's truth? Is our yes, yes, and our no, no, as Jesus says in Matthew? Do, do Christians promise and deliver? And shouldn't that just be the expectation regardless of whether or not we've made an oath or vow in the first place? You know, this text got me thinking, um, perhaps the, one of the only places where vows and oaths carry any weight today is in courtrooms. I mean, after all, there are real penalties for perjury and deceit. 
for those who make an oath to tell the whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But do you notice, like, even in that phrase, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just more of like a formality, right? It's actually kind of hilarious because in a sworn statement where you're telling the truth, you're actually swearing to tell three different kinds of truths, right? It's, it's a sort of a meaningless statement, and yet, so, so, so that doesn't mean anything. But what matters in a courtroom is the credibility of the person giving the testimony. When a prosecutor or a defendant is placing someone on the stand, what are they trying to establish or de-establish? Reputation, character, morality, plausibility. That when this person speaks, this person is going to speak with integrity, honesty, and their words because of who they are as a person. This is what James wishes for Christians to be. James is, is breaking this verse down here and saying, you know why you don't have to necessarily make oaths? Because your heart has been transformed by the saving power of the gospel. That apart from his grace, yes, you once were a liar, you were a deceiver, and you were deceived, and you couldn't buy credibility even if you tried. But because of Christ, the living word, the word who became flesh and fulfilled all the promises of God, you have an integrity given to you that you could have never earned or ever deserved. See, now your words mean something. Now they have weight because you are now an ambassador of Christ. You are his herald. You speak for him. You are given plausibility because Christ's grace has so covered you and changed your life in such a dramatic fashion that the world looks at you in awe because of the new creation you've become. It's life-changing grace that surrounds you now, and now everything you do is covered with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. So much to the point that anyone looking at you would say there is no shadow of a doubt that there's something different about this person. And this is why the cavalier swearing of James 5.12 doesn't work. It betrays our witness, and especially when Christians have the best news to share, we belie our testimony when we tell others that the God is the almighty creator of the universe, but we swear our lives on something else. Something so trivial, so little, so thoughtless, Rather than the God who carries us, we are, like Esau, throwing away our birthrights for a portion of soup. We are writing checks that only God can cash, and we default on our checks all the time. There is no higher price that is paid when a Christian swears on anything other than God and his word for us. And this is why James exclaims that this is above all. Because when we swear on anything else, we're not just focusing on ourselves and the act of, the, of what we promised, but we're forgetting what God swears to us. This is our third point. Christian, do you remember what God has promised us? Do we really believe that God is a God of his word? That our God is a covenant God? Do, do we know the beauties and the joys of all that he has done for us and all that he said that he would do? That you are his sons and daughters, perfectly loved. That while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
that he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak, that he will never leave you or forsake you. That from eternity past, the Father promised with the Son and the Spirit that this plan was the plan of redemption, that he would fulfill every bit of the promise of sending Jesus to die for us and rise again on the third day, that we might be reconciled to him. Do we remember that God kept every part of the promise for thousands and thousands of years, showing mercy and compassion and faithfulness to all? Do you remember what God has sworn to you? Because when we forget, the consequences are disastrous. You know, one of the most infamous vows in all of Scripture comes from a little section in the book of Judges, chapter 11. And there's a judge by the name of Jephthah who thinks he's making a righteous vow with the Lord. And so he says, Lord, if, if you give me victory over your enemies, the pagan Ammonites, then I will give a sacrificial offering of the first person that walks out of his house. And so in one of the very first examples of legalism, Jephthah adds a moral clause that isn't biblical in his vow to the Lord. And even worse, he thinks that he can't take that vow back. He wasn't even supposed to make that vow. He wasn't even supposed to keep that vow. But he goes on with it. And guess who the first person that comes out of his house is? His daughter. He thinks he understands God's sworn promises, and he thinks he's applying it appropriately. But there are two tragedies in this Bible story. The first tragedy is the narrative of, of obviously, he, he goes through with the sacrificial offering of his daughter. But the second, the greater tragedy, is that no one in the story knows the promises that God has promised him. Not Jephthah. Not his daughter, not her companions, not of any of Jephthah's counsel that, that, that tell Jephthah, you don't need to do this. She could have been spared in a variety of fashions. No one can make a vow to the Lord that is against his will. No one has to keep a vow that goes against God's word. No one who is in this position, guess what? They can be redeemed with silver according to the Levitical law. But everyone in the story forgets God's sworn promises. And as a result, they ruin their lives because of it. God swears to us for our good if only we are able and ready to listen and hear and remember. This is exactly why we come every Sunday morning to remember the promises of what God has sworn to us. We listen to his promises prayed, preached, read, sung. We taste and see that the Lord is good, and that the living word is present with us here today. We, we, we fill ourselves anew with the very promises of God, the very words of life. And when we do, it transforms us. It changes us. It shapes us to consider how we are better to love and glorify God and love our neighbor. It reminds us what the Christian promise is and calls us to live the same and when you realize that this is the only hope of what God swears to us, that this is the only thing that we can hope on, we find our bedrock. We find our joy. We find grace to live in a world full of broken promises and shattered dreams. See, and here's, here's the transformational part about this. When you realize it's only God's sworn promises that we can guarantee, then other broken oaths and vows won't ruin us. 
You know, our jobs may vow prosperity and comfort, but when they fail, it won't rob us of our future hope of a heavenly kingdom and a peace without end. You know, our, our relationships with friends and family might find brokenness in the oaths that we make to one another, but it will not overtake us because nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know, our governments, legislations, and institutions may fail us, but we are not crushed when this happens because our striving is for the King of Kings to take the throne. And even our own promises, when they fail, when our yeses become nos and maybes, we don't, we don't beat ourselves up endlessly because even though the grass withers and the flowers fade, the Word of God will remain forever. Above all things, God's word remains. Above all, God's promises are yes and amen. Above all, God's covenant is rested on the fact that he will not fail and he is right on time. Above all, God's posture to you is one of grace and forgiveness and life and love that reaches far beyond any promise we could ever make. And he's offering that here before us today. So will we take it and receive it, church? Will we take the Lord's promise and see that he is good and that he is faithful to us today? Let's pray together. Father, we rest on you. We make our oaths and our vows to you because you are the only one that can deliver. Your will is the only one that remains. And so, Lord, May our foundation and trust be in not in any other thing but your promises, what you swear to us. Father, forgive us of the ways in which we have <laughs> ruined our testimony as the church, where we swear things on anything else that isn't you, God, and how we have so failed in that. But Lord, we trust in the forgiveness of Christ. We trust in his redemptive work. And we know that to be true, that we can now step forward into new life because you have promised it to us. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.